You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, we are so grateful for the gift of the Spirit. So thankful that we are not alone, but that as Jesus promised, you are always with us. We pray now that that same spirit that you gave at Pentecost would descend upon us now. The same spirit that inspired the words of the scriptures to be written would now illumine the reading and preaching of your word. Help us all in our weakness, um, especially me, that we all would not just hear, but respond to the word of God today with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Hey, good morning. So great to see you. Um, I'm Corey. I'm um, the senior pastor here at Third Church. Welcome if you're visiting today on this holiday weekend. Uh, We um, have been together since Easter studying this little wonderful section of Scripture, John 14 through 17, um, which is an incredibly beautiful and unusual portion of the Scriptures in which Jesus is about to depart. He's going to be crucified and then risen, and then he will ascend. And he is giving instructions to his friends about how to follow him after he's gone. And he's making a promise to them that he would be always with them. Today, we're getting to the very last of this um, little section in John 17. And this really is, I think, one of the most remarkable pieces of scripture in the whole Bible, in which we get to listen in on Jesus praying what, he want, what, he is, what is coming out of his heart just before he is crucified. So um, this week and next, we're going to spend these two weeks in this wonderful chapter. And so this morning, if you want to turn in your Bibles to John 17, um, I'm going to be reading the first 19 verses. It's a bit of a long reading, and so do what you can to pay attention. It helps you to have your Bible out or an app out or just to listen, close your eyes, whatever. Um, But let's listen to this remarkable prayer from, from Jesus himself as he prepares for his own death. John 17, after Jesus had said these things to his followers, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Verse six, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believe that you sent me. So I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction 
so that scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 13, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. So have you ever been standing in line or um, sitting in a coffee shop or something, and two people are having an interesting conversation within your earshot, and you just can't help but listen in, right? Come on, admit it. Eavesdropping, you know, one of my favorite activities, so fun. Um, Because it's one thing to hear, it's another thing to overhear, right? Because when you overhear, especially a conversation that two people may be having, um, you feel like you're hearing like the real stuff, right? You, You feel like you're hearing sort of the unvarnished, authentic words that two people are speaking to one another. You're hearing something legit. What we have in John 17 is a truly remarkable experience of overhearing. And in this chapter, we're not hearing God uh, speak to us, nor are we hearing us speak to God. What we're doing is we are overhearing God speaking to God. We are listening in on God the Son speaking to God his Father We are hearing an intimate conversation within the communion of the triune Godhead. That's remarkable. That's that's something remarkable to to eavesdrop on, right? And we have to also remember that this is is just before Jesus died. And as a pastor, I often have had the privilege of being with people just before they die. And I'm telling you that just before people die, people talk about what's most important to them. When you are about to die, when you know that you are on your way to death, you are thinking about and meditating on what is most deeply important to you. That's what flows out of your heart. So here we are, overhearing God speak to God, God the Son speaking to God the Father the night before he is crucified, praying about the things that are most important to him. And what is Jesus thinking about? What is Jesus praying about? What is he talking about? You, us, his disciples, his present, his future disciples. This of all, this is what is on the mind of Jesus. And specifically, he is praying to his father about us, but specifically about the mission, the mission that he is about to give to us. He's given us his presence. He's given us his spirit. And now he is giving us his mission that we will continue after He's departed. So that's what we're going to talk about today, this amazing chapter. That's the great theme of this chapter, the theme of mission. And so we're going to look at three things, each to start with P, because y'all know I love that. Um, So we're going to first look at the plan for mission that we see in this prayer. Second, we're going to look at the posture of mission. And then finally, we're going to look at the power for mission, okay? The plan for mission, the posture of mission, and the power for mission. Y'all with me? You guys way back and chilling on the couches? You with me back there? Good to see those two thumbs up. All right. 
Okay, so first let's talk about the plan for mission. Now, those of you who are maybe um, receptive listeners might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, mission? I didn't hear Jesus use the word mission. What are you talking about, preacher? How is this text about mission? Well, uh uh-huh, perceptive listener, you are correct. Jesus does not use the English word mission um, in in this text. However, I want you to pay attention to how many times Jesus uses the word sent or send. It's quite a big theme here. So in verse three, he calls himself the one whom the father sent. Verse eight, he says, Father, you sent me. Verse 18, he says, as you sent me, so I am sending them. Now, that word sent is the Greek word apostolo, from where we get our word apostle. And it is the Latin word missio. (laughs) There it is. Missio, of course, is where we get our word mission from. And so all the word mission means is sentness, sent, right? So here in this prayer, Jesus says, I am the sent one from the Father, and I am sending my people in the same way the Father has sent me. So verse 18 is really the key verse in this whole text. And it says this, Jesus says, as you, Father, sent me into the world, so now I have sent them into the world. And he says something similar after he raises from the dead in John 20. He says to his disciples, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means, of course, that Jesus is the sent one. He is the great sent one. If somebody ever asks you, what is the Bible all about? What would you say? Say you had 30 seconds to describe what the Bible is all about. Well, there's a lot of things that you could say. Here's one thing you could say. You could say, the Bible is the true story of the mission of God to redeem the world, right? It's the true story of the mission of God. The the Bible begins with God making a good and beautiful world where he will dwell with his people. And then that world falls into death and destruction because of human rebellion. And then God, instead of throwing the world away into the scrap heap, he commits himself to redeem the world and rescue humanity from sin and death. That's what the whole story of the Bible is about. God, God's mission to redeem and rescue the world. And what is his great strategy for his mission? The son, Jesus Christ. God the Father sends God the Son and the power of God the Spirit to accomplish God's great mission of redeeming and rescuing the world. And so Jesus incarnates the presence of God in his incarnation. Jesus brings the kingdom of God in his life and ministry. Uh, Jesus bears the curse of sin and the judgment of God in his crucifixion. Jesus rises from the dead and guarantees eternal life of the world through his resurrection. Jesus is the great missionary who is sent by the Father and the power of the Spirit to redeem and rescue all things, right? So that's the first thing. Jesus is the sent one. But the second thing that Jesus says is that he sends us just as the Father sent me, so I am sending them. What does that mean? Well, on the one hand, of course, we must say that the work of salvation that Jesus accomplished is finished. It's completed. He says actually here, I think in verse three um, or verse four, that my work is completed. So we say the work of salvation is finished. There's nothing left for Jesus to accomplish. It's all been done. His death, his resurrection is a complete work. And yet the work of salvation is completed, but the work of mission remains unfinished, right? There's 
the world is still broken. There, people are still living in poverty and oppression. The devil is still roaming. There are many, many people who have not yet heard and believed in the name of Jesus. And so the work of mission remains unfinished. And Jesus says, I am leaving with the mission unfinished, but that's part of the plan. My plan is now, as I go back to God, that the mission of Jesus would continue through his followers in every part of the world to every tribe and tongue and nation. And that's what we remember today, friends. That's what we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday. Today, we remember the day when the early church was gathered in Jerusalem and Jesus had ascended and they were waiting for his gift and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church in Jerusalem and they began to speak in all the different languages of the earth and then they were sent out and to speak the good news about Jesus to all the nations. And so at that moment, the mission of God begins in a new way as Jesus extends his mission now in and through his people. You could think about it like this. So I noticed, I just looked at all the movies that are coming out recently. Now it's like summer blockbuster time where all the movies are. Have you all noticed how many sequels are coming out? So many sequels. So it's like um, Into the Spider-Verse 2, Gardens of the Galaxy 3, Indiana Jones 4, pretty excited about that one, uh, Transformers 6, and of course, because we were all desperately waiting for it, Fast and Furious 10, right? <laughs> um, and what are these, um, what are these sequels? Um, sequels is, is simply, it's, it's not a new protagonist, usually. It's, it's not even usually a particularly new plot. It's a continuation of the story that originated in the first film. And so if you were making the mission of God into a movie franchise, which I hope no one ever does, um, you could say that the first movie is called The Mission of God, part one, starring Jesus Christ, the son, the sent one. And then the mission of God, part two, is starring the church of Jesus Christ filled with the spirit of the son. That's kind of a long title, but we, someone would come up with a better title. But, but in both films, part one and part two, the protagonist is the same, the Holy, um, God the Father, God the Son, the God the Spirit. The, the goal is still the same. The plot is still the same, the mission of God. And in the first film, God is primarily acting in and through the incarnate Jesus. And in the second film, God is primarily acting in and through the church filled with the power of the Spirit. Does that make sense? But we are drawn into the story of the mission of God. What, how does this change the way we think about our life? Oh my gosh, it changes everything. It, what it means is, is that being a Christian means being drawn into the mission of God. That being a Christian means connected to the risen Jesus who is at work right now, extending his mission to the nations. And that your core identity now is that you are a part of that mission. You are a sent one. You are a part of the mission of God. You know, when I was in um, seminary, I had to take the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI, um, it's a, it's sort of a test to see if, um, to assess like serious personality disorders. And it's just hundreds of true false questions. And one of the questions said, um, I am a secret agent from God, true, false. And, <laughs> and uh, I had to really pause when I got to that question because I knew if I answered it true that I would get a phone call from someone. However, 
So I did answer it false. But however, each Christian secretly knows that it is true, right? <laughs> it is true that you, if you belong to the risen Jesus, you are a missionary secretly disguised as a mom or a dad or a neighbor or a colleague or a social worker or a student or a nurse or a teacher or a lawyer or a stay-at-home parent, right? You are someone who is now sent and your core identity is that you are a sent one. Mission is not a department. It's not volunteer work. It's not what you do in your spare time. Mission is now who you are, the very core of your being. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sent, now I am sending you, and this is core to who we are now. This is such great news, friends. We all deeply need a mission that is greater than ourselves. Um, so much of our society now says that the purpose of your life is just to kind of find your own meaning and find your own dream and fulfill it. Only you know what's right for you, so ditch all expectations and just pursue what makes you happy. But the problem with that is that when you live for your own comfort and happiness and needs, you might actually have an okay life. You might have a life that is okay. You might have good vacations. You might have a really nice house. You might have excellent countertops. You know, you might have some of these things. But in the end, when your own needs are the most significant thing in your life, you will increasingly feel that your life is insignificant and that you're not making a difference for anything or anyone else. And ironically, the more you live for yourself, the smaller your life feels. And so what Jesus is offering us here and incorporating us into his mission is, is truly the most significant thing you could ever live for, which ironically is not living for yourself. That he's inviting us into something that is so big and so beautiful and so much more important and so much more astounding that he is giving us a mission that transcends our needs and transcends our happiness. He's calling us into the great mission of God to renew all things in love. And this is why Jesus says in verse 13, all this is so that they may have the full measure of my joy. There is nothing better, y'all. There's nothing more beautiful to be to, to be living for something that is so beautiful and so exciting that you can be a part of the great mission of God to extend his love to all things. That's his plan. His plan is us, okay? So that's the plan for mission, that Jesus is ascending and he's giving his spirit to empower his church in his mission. Let's talk though about the posture of mission. And I'll tell you uh, a little bit what I mean by that. Um, did you notice how many times Jesus uses the word world in this passage? Did anybody notice that? It's a word that comes up a lot here. He actually uses the word world 12 times in these 19 verses. And in the book of John, world refers not so much to like the good and beautiful material world, but refers to the rebellious world that is living in, in, in rebellion against God, antithetical to his kingdom. So what is Jesus saying about his Christian community and what should be our posture towards the world as we move out in mission? Well, I want you to notice that Jesus says something really interesting. He kind of has a nuance here about our posture. He says, on the one hand, verse 16, that they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Okay, so he's saying, you are to be different from the world. You're to be distinct, separate, have a different set of worldview, different values in the world, right? That's the first thing. But then the second thing he says is verse 18, as you sent me in the world, I have sent them into the world. And so on the other hand, he says, you're to be engaged in the world. You're to be involved in it. Sometimes you might have heard people describe this as being in the world and not of the world. Have you heard that phrase before? That's great. What in the world does that mean? 
Christians have argued about that for many, many years, and we certainly can't resolve that this morning, but I just want to offer you what, what, what I think is a good model for what Jesus is actually teaching here. Um, I, I read this great book years ago um, that I would commend to you. It's called To Change the World by a Christian sociologist named James Davison Hunter. He was actually a professor and mentor of mine at UVA when I was there. Um, and Hunter sort of analyzes the way the American church has approached culture, has approached its posture towards the world. And he, and he basically suggests there's been three significant ways that the American church has done this. Um, the first is what he calls um, defensive against the world. Defensive against the world. And this is the posture in which the church sees the culture and the world as a sinister and wicked environment that needs changing, that needs changing. And so the primary job in this posture of the Christian community is to defend ourselves against the world and to regain power and control over the world, okay? This would be the, primarily the posture of the Christian right um, that especially since the 1980s has sought to use politics and the legal system to gain control over the cultural narrative, okay? That's, that's the first one he says, defensive against the world. The second is what he calls relevance to the world. In this posture, um, Christians see the world as changing and secularizing. And so in order to connect with the changing world, we accommodate our values, our ethics, our theology um, to better connect with the world, right? This is the posture, Hunter says, of Christian liberalism, uh, mainline Protestantism, as well as some forms of the evangelical seeker-sensitive movement, relevance to the world. The third and final posture he suggests has typified the Christian community is withdrawal from the world. So in this camp, the world is perceived as so fallen and spiritually dangerous that we need to avoid the world altogether. And so Christians withdraw from it and isolate themselves and create parallel institutions and stay as insulated and separated from the world as possible. This is the posture of many fundamentalist Christians, pietistic and holiness churches, and some Anabaptist communities. Okay, so there it is. There's the three ways that Christians have tended to approach the world and their mission. Defensive against the world, relevance to the world, withdrawal from the world. Which is the right choice, do you think? Sorry? None. Oh, good job, class. <laughs> D, uh, none of the above. And the reason is, is because in each case, each one betrays some aspect of the mission of Jesus, right? So withdrawing from the world is clearly betraying Jesus' call to be in the world. Jesus wants us to be involved, integrated, deeply engaged in the life of the world, right? The second one, relevance to the world, has gone the other direction. In our effort to connect, we've been won over by the world. And so we've accommodated our values and practices to the extent that we've lost our distinctive identity, what makes us attractive. And then the first, defensive against the world, I actually think is perhaps the most dangerous of all because the goal itself is corrupted, right? Jesus never says, take over the world or control the world. He says, love the world as I have loved it. And when Christians resort to power and politics and mean political brawlers to accomplish our agenda for us, we are not only betraying the mission of self-sacrificial love, but we are capitulating to the worst elements of our secular culture that we claim to be redeeming. And that is certainly to not be distinct from the world. So what do we do, right? In this mission that Jesus has given us, what is the right posture towards the world? Well, James Hunter suggests, and I agree with him, that this is the right model that Jesus is teaching, faithful presence within the world. Faithful presence within the world. What does that mean? It means on the one hand, we are different. We're faithful, right? We are 
we are not of the world. We have a different value system. Uh, we have a different understanding of money, of sex, of power, a different approach to life. Y'all, this is absolutely necessary. Look, if Christians are just as individualistic and just as materialistic, and if, and if, and if we are just as dependent on our circumstances for our happiness, um, and if we are just as hostile and prejudiced towards people that don't have our views on religion or politics, if we're just as angry towards people who are different than us politically or culturally, seriously, why would anybody listen to us? Why? 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 If we look just like everyone else, if we're fighting the same battles that everyone else is fighting, why would anyone take us seriously? Why would anyone believe that Jesus is the sent one from God? So we're different. And yet, we're also a faithful presence within. Notice Jesus doesn't just say we're in the world. He says he's, we're into the world, which suggests deep penetration into the life of the world, being deeply engaged with people who radically differ from your beliefs, to be involved with people who are around you in your communities and neighborhoods and institutions and schools and community and place of work and society and culture where there are people who do not know and follow Jesus so that we would know them and know their fears and worries and understand their passions and problems and, and understand their dreams and hopes even if we do not share them. We are so engaged with the parts of our city and world that are most broken and poor and lost. We are like those we are those who resemble Jesus, who, if you remember, was so deeply engaged in the life of the rebellious world that he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, and yet was so different and distinct from the world that everybody wanted to get close to him, though they did not understand him. What would happen, third church family, if we were a community like that? Can you imagine? What would happen if we were a community that was so deeply engaged in the world and yet totally not like it? Someone who was so committed yet not reflective of its values? My friend Jeff years ago planted a, a church in Harlem, in a poor neighborhood in Harlem, and the church got deeply involved in the life of its community, especially in the area of education and affordable housing. And one day, one of Jeff's neighbors said to him, Jeff, you know I don't believe in God, and you know I really wish you would stop talking so much about Jesus. But you and your church have pressed so much good and so much value into this community, I really hope you never leave. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Faithful presence within, in the world and not of it. We are the sent ones, sent into the world, but distinct from the world. We're here not to control the world, y'all. We're not here to take over the world, to win elections, to destroy our enemies, to make America in our image. We are here to bear witness to Jesus in the coming of his kingdom. That's why we're here. We're here to demonstrate that Jesus is Lord with our words, with our lives, to love our enemies, to give generously, go the way of forgiveness, to reject greed and fruitless accumulation, to live radically for and with the poor, to live as an alternative, distinctive community within the wider world. We're the sent ones. So the last question would be, if that's true, where do we get the power to do this, right? If that's the vision, if that's the plan, where do we get the power for this? Well, Power comes first, I think, from knowing that we are safe. 
Think back to those three postures. Do you remember what they are? The three, the three not good postures. Do you remember what they are? Can you tell them back to me? Um, defensive against, relevance to, withdrawal from. Here's the thing. I think that the root of each of those is fear. What do psychologists say? I'm looking at a psychologist over there. What do psychologists say um, are the three most basic responses of humans when they experience fear? I'll start with F. Fight, flight, and freeze. Oh, y'all are such good students. Um, so look, I mean, each of those in their own way demonstrates one of those reactions to fear. So, so fight, defend against the world and attack it. Freeze, don't do anything to rock the boat, accommodate and make peace. Or flee, remove ourselves and avoid it. All three actions are deeply rooted in fear. And it's understandable because the world is scary, right? Jesus himself prayed, verse 11, protect them by the power of your name. Verse 15, don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one in the world. We live in a world that is deeply broken in which the devil is real and is roaming about, creating havoc. Uh, and the result, the world is scary, dangerous, and there are a lot of things out there in the culture and society that threaten to harm us. And yet, when we don't trust that God is taking care of us, when we don't believe that things are going to be okay, and when we see society changing with its you know, values and worldviews and gender and sexuality norms and social and political positions, all these things, it's natural to feel fear, but we all tend towards one of these ways of coping with our fear, withdrawing and avoiding, or accommodating and adapting, or attacking and controlling. In each case, we fail the mission of Jesus. So what do we do? One resource is that we can claim that we are safe in the love of God. Jesus is praying for us. Father, protect them in the power of your name. Protect them from the evil one. Keep them safe in your love. And brothers and sisters, safe is what we are. Dallas Willard writes, Jesus brings us the assurance that the universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Do you believe that? It's hard to believe it right? With all the threats and all the things that could go wrong to us and to our children. But because of what God has done and because of what God is doing, Jesus has conquered sin and death and the devil. He's reigning over heaven and earth and the day of the healing of the universe is coming. Nothing can undo that, not death, not disease, not disaster. When we take God's perspective on reality, not CNN's perspective on reality, not Fox News's perspective on reality, but God's perspective on reality, we see that the world is perfectly safe because Jesus is risen from the dead. He is reigning over all things and the mission of God is moving quickly towards its victorious climax. Jesus has left us his spirit and he is with us. And he says, do not be afraid. And when you're not afraid, you're free. You don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to freeze up. You don't have to flee. You are free to love take a risk, to bind yourself up with people who don't share your beliefs, to speak boldly about Jesus at risk of your reputation. When, when you're free of fear, there are so many things that we can do as we are joining in the mission of God's love to the world. So friends, let me ask you this. What is the purpose of your life? So many of us are drowning under such small ambitions. 
We're feeling so smothered by our smallness and by the insignificance of our lives. But Jesus says, come and taste my joy, the joy of living for my mission, living for something beautiful, living for something stupendous. You have been the object of God's great missionary love. Now he calls you to be a part of his great mission of love to the world. There is nothing more fulfilling than that. Let's pray. We do praise you, Father, that we have been the objects of your great missionary love. Jesus is the great cross-cultural missionary who didn't just cross cultural boundaries, but cross heaven and earth to claim us, to rescue us, to redeem us. Thank you that we are the object of your mission and that because of that, we can now be subjects of mission. We can be those who have received love and who now move out in love in the world. We pray for the power of your spirit to swallow up our fear knowing that Jesus has conquered sin and death, that the day of evil is coming to an end, and that your victory is coming. And because of that, we are free, free to love, not to control, not to run away, but free to simply love and to proclaim and extend the good news of Jesus. Give us that power from the Spirit, we pray in his name. Amen.